and he proclaims the kingdom of God. It's not something light. It's not something fluffy. It's not something that, that just superficially coats your soul. You know, like, you remember that Dean Martin song? We sang it at our family Christmas yesterday. It's a marshmallow world in the winter. Uh, da, da. You may probably don't. It's terrible. It's not even on the radio much anymore. Any, uh, but it's not that kind of joy. It's a deep-seated, resolute, determined joy. And John the Baptist preaches a hard lesson. He does it because in Christ's kingdom, there's no grandchildren. Have you ever heard that saying? In God's kingdom, there's no grandchildren. There's no grandchildren of God, it's been said. Why? Because it's only through repentance, it's only through God's grace and an act of our will that we can come into the kingdom of God. John, or Johann Arnold, an uh, Anabaptist preacher of the 20th century in England, wrote this. He said, Fear not. Such a gift can only be given to the surrendered heart, one that knows itself to be in the palms of God's hand. Fear not. Such a gift can only be given to the surrendered heart. You see, that admonition is both striking and bad news to the person who hasn't submitted themselves, but it's good news to the person that's done all that he can and can't quite see God's favor in his life. And see, the gospel is that message that you don't have your act together before you get to God. All you have to do is repent. But all you have to do is repent. And that's a hard thing to do. So as we look at the text today, there's three things. Number one, we're going to look at the reality of human nature, according to the Bible. We're going to look, number two, at God's plan to save us. And number three, we're going to look at reasons we have to rejoice. We begin with the, man, the reality of mankind's position, brought front and center by none other than John the Baptist. Look with me at the gospel reading, either in your Bible or in the insert. Chapter 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowd that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come. What's the reality of mankind? What's the reality of unregenerate human nature? Well, John the Baptist said, you're a pit of snakes. A pit of snakes. Well, how do we argue with that? We look around us and we see evidence of that all over the place. John the Baptist doesn't mince words because it's true, and the reality is that human beings without God are vicious. We climb over each other 
just like a snake slithers over the other snakes with unbridled ambition. We fight with each other for the smallest morsel, just like a pit of snakes would fight over a breadcrumb. We hoard our possessions, guarding closely the things that have been given to us in the first place, not sharing them with others. We use our power and our position to gain unjustly, just as the stronger snake submits the weaker ones. Look around at the world. Unbridled ambition is the virtue to get to the top in many people's view. Take a better look at yourself. What drives you? Take a look at your job situations, your offices, the relationships that you see in the corporate world or the political world. You brood of vipers, says John the Baptist, and it's hard to argue with him. And if we're honest, we see these tendencies in ourselves even as Christians, being excised, being cleansed from us, as we prayed at the beginning with the collect of the day, we ask the Lord to cleanse such things from us if we're honest with ourselves. John the Baptist sees them all around him in Judea in the first century. And it's interesting that today's gospel ends talking about King Herod, who, of course, was the political example of this. But look what John the Baptist says. At his time, John sees sin and sinner. And too often, the church and Christ followers ignore such behavior in ourselves and in the world around us. As we look again at the gospel, what is it that John calls the people that want to repent to do? Look at verse 10. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Verse 13, and he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also came to him. And what, and we, what shall we do? He said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. As the people were in great expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So notice, what's the first step for John in repentance? Stop. We haven't talked about Jesus here yet, except that he's coming. We haven't talked about salvation yet. The Holy Spirit starts to enter the picture here when, with Jesus, right? And of course, the Holy Spirit's always at work. But repentance is the beginning of faith. Repentance is simply an act of the will. And the people come to John, 
And John says, stop doing these things. Stop extorting. Stop hoarding. Stop using your power over others to collect taxes unfairly. The first act of repentance when we're going down a road to death is to stop walking down that road. And the second step is to turn around, which is literally what repentance means. To turn around. And notice what happens when we turn around. We start facing God. We start seeing God. We start seeing God's purposes. It's hard for us to face that, isn't it? In ourselves. And particularly, it's hard for a non-Christian to face that in our world. I was talking with somebody this week, a friend, and she said to me, when did it become not okay to disagree with somebody? Since when can I not judge someone's character by what she says or does? This particular person had lied to a group of friends and was found out that she was telling a half-truth. And half of the friends said, well, you know, it's okay. We can't judge her. To quote Father Gene Sherman, bull squat. Bull squat. It's okay to just not judge that person, to evaluate his or her character. Since when is that the way that we act? It's scary to see people excusing sinful behavior but it's not just a modern phenomenon. Bishop J.C. Ryle writes in the 19th century, what would it be of the Church of Christ if it possessed more plain-speaking ministers like John the Baptist in these latter days? A morbid disease, a morbid dislike, rather, to strong language, excessive fear of giving offense, a constant flinching from directness and plain-speaking are unhappily too much the character characteristics from the modern pulpit. And, of course, the modern pulpit for him is the 19th century England, <laughs> the time of Charles Dickens. Many of us clergy stand condemned for not being more forthright. We, too, suffer from a desire to be liked. We fear repercussion. We put ourselves into a victim status. To us, God says, fear not. But you laity, you ministers, and by that I mean ministers of the gospel, you too stand condemned. There's this odd idea I find among Christian laity that somehow, if they're just nice enough, if they're just winsome enough, people will find Christ. The thought goes like this. Well, if I call them out, they'll think that I'm a legalist. They'll think that somehow I'm one of those judgy church people. That, too, is an age-old mistake. Bishop Ryle continues, there's no charity in flattering unconverted people by abstaining from any mention of their vices or applying smooth epitaphs to their damnable sins. There's no charity to it. 
Why? Because when we let those things pass, when we let things go unchecked in our world, in our relationships, what we're doing is keeping God out of it. Because God's will is made clear in the law. So when we excuse people from the law, they can't see God for who he is. Did you ever think about it that way? There's an old saying that that you are the only Bible that some people will read. Well, if you as a Christian are living a life that excuses such things, how are they ever going to get to the Ten Commandments? Our reformers put the Ten Commandments at the beginning of the service because we need to see the law. We don't want to see the law, but we need to see it because it shows us where we're not in alignment with God. And that's why John the Baptist is so blunt here. But it's a risk. When we confront sin, we're often confronted. And who likes that? And sometimes we find ourselves asking, is the result worth the risk? But to that, John the Baptist, and I think Jesus himself would say, well, is that person worth the risk? Is that person's eternal soul worth the risk of not getting confronted back, of not having something blow up in your face, of not showing forth the way of God to somebody? The obvious answer when we look at it that way is of course it's worth the risk. Yeah, it might be painful, but of course it's worth the risk that a person might find God. Look at verse 18 of the gospel passage. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. Stop right there. With many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. So far, you might be saying to yourself, Father Sean, where do you see rejoicing in this text? And I found myself reading this gospel passage and being taken aback by that verse Good news, John. Good news, really? This is good news? (laughs) You brood of vipers? But yes, it is good news. Because when we come to the reality of the problem, or as Bishop Ryle says, the root of the disease, then we can have the remedy. That's what repentance is. Coming to the bottom of the problem and saying, Lord... I need you. Once again, that opening quote, it's only to the surrendered soul that this is good news. The disease before him was desperate, says Bishop Ryle, and he knew the desperate diseases need strong remedies. So it is. And so we need to rejoice in our repentance And we need not to shrink from our duty to those around us. Because when we don't preach the fullness of God's counsel, we actually condemn people in a way. We take away an opportunity for them to say, wow, I screwed up. Maybe I should turn around on this. Or maybe not everybody does it this way. Or maybe I've gone down this path and there's other paths. 
you see. Rejoice. But when we do repent, look at our first reading. Look what it's for the sake of. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, rejoice, and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. After repentance, that hard, hard task comes this glory. That because of Jesus, there is good news. Because a Savior, an anointed Messiah, that's what the word Lord here means, Because of that, the judgments have been taken away. The law no longer condemns you. Because Christ has put himself in your place. Therefore, we can rejoice, we can result. I'm sorry, we can exalt. We can sing even. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. Doesn't that sound great? On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with singing. I've preached on this before, but I I, I always tear up as I read this verse. Think of God himself, the creator of the universe. Verse 17, the Lord God is in your midst a mighty one who will save you. And then this imagery, he'll rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. What's it mean to quiet you by his love? That his love is so all-pervasive that all of that agitation, all of that struggle with sin to be cleansed is quieted by God's love because the Holy Spirit is in the midst of you. O Zion, and me, O daughter of Jerusalem. Do you see? That is good news. Look at verse 18. I will gather those who mourn for the festival, that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I will gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes. And therefore, St. Paul writes to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Why? Because of what God's done for us. Because of this richness of the gospel that starts with repentance and finishes with God's redeeming grace and love. Then he gives some things that we should do. Let your reasonableness be known about everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the promise, verse 7. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So for the Christian, for the Christ follower, we too have to repent, but we repent in a different way. We repent as we journey along saying, Lord, I missed that one. Lord, I screwed that up. Lord, do you see that the Ten Commandments, it's a confession. 
you go through it and you say, well, I'm trying to follow you, but boy, I messed up in that, that thing or this thing or that thing. But here's the good news, that even in the confession, even in the reading of God's law is the grace. The grace comes through the law. As God says, I'm in you. I'm in your midst. I will help you with that. I will keep you going. Rejoice, O church. Rejoice. For the Lord is in our midst. And this is the good news we have to tell. It doesn't sound good at first. But when we're faithful to the gospel, when we're faithful to all the gospel, not just the pleasant, fluffy lightness of it, God brings a deep and a rich joy, a deep and an abiding peace that will see us through everything from here and through death itself. Rejoice, O church. And if in this morning you're in a place where you're saying, how can I rejoice? Remember, God is here to quiet you with his love. If you're here saying, how can I rejoice? Remember, the mighty one of Israel is in your midst. And if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is in you. Rejoice? How can we not? How can we not? Amen.